Amen. Amen. Well, good to have you here in God's house today. We're glad that you're here with us to worship, uh, to continue our worship. Great job with the praise team and just beautiful songs and beautiful aspects of worship. And so now we want to come and look into God's Word and have God speak to you today in a personal way. And uh, I know He has spoken to me in a personal way as I've prepared for this message today. And so I'm going to uh, share it with you today. Take your Bibles, if you will, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 27 to 33. Mark 8. I've entitled the message, Following God in Transition. Following God in Transition. Let's stand together. We'll read God's Word. Follow along as I read verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others said Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests but on man. You may be seated. We're continuing our series through the book of Mark, and it's been a wonderful series. I've had a wonderful time studying God's Word, and I've got something to say today that I believe will challenge your hearts, as it certainly has mine. And I wish I could say a lot of this is conquered in my life, but it's definitely not. The disciples here were motivated uh, to literally um, leave Orthodox Judaism. They were willing to walk away from everything they'd known, the whole religion of Judaism, and they were willing to leave it. And they were willing to face the ostracism of following Jesus. And so the reason they did that is because they believed Jesus when he said he would set up the kingdom of God. And so they were interested in this kingdom of God because Jesus even came in Mark 1 and said, Behold, the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. And that's exactly what they did. They repented and believed because they believed by that statement Jesus was coming, up to, was coming to set up a kingdom on this earth. He was going to eventually do that, but he wasn't going to do it in their lifetime. And so they didn't quite get that because they believed he was going to be a king set it up on this earth, and therefore the Romans would not be in rule. They would be back in control, and they would be right-hand man to Jesus in the kingdom of God. Now, that was Act 1. That's Act 1 completely where they see the kingdom of God coming and being set up. The problem with Act 1, we're in Act 2 today, the problem with Act 1 is they could, see, they could see the crown, but they couldn't see the cross. They could see the crown, but they couldn't see the cross. In other words, they could see the kingdom coming, but they could not see the cross that was before them. And they're following Jesus in anticipation of the cross, uh, anticipation of the crown in Act One. But now we come to Act Two, and what's happening in Act Two is he's leaving the Sea of Galilee, and now he's going to go on the way to Jerusalem. So it's in three parts: 
Sea of Galilee is the first part of Mark. The middle part is on the way to Jerusalem. And then the third part is Jerusalem. And so here is the beginning of Act 2 today. And in the beginning of Act 2, Jesus talks to them on the way. That's the key phrase. You'll see that repeated several times in chapter 8 through chapter 12. On the way. On the way. Because he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's in transition. They didn't quite get that. And so now they had to learn how to follow Jesus in a fog. That's the best way I like to say that. They had to learn how to follow Jesus in a fog. The real test of your faith is can you follow Jesus in a fog? When you cannot see your way clearly, can you follow Jesus? And that's kind of where I'm going today with this. If everything's okay in your life and your bills are paid and all is okay and all in order, you don't need faith. But when you need faith is when you follow Jesus and he's going to have you walk with him in a fog and you're not going to understand what he's doing in your life. That's the hard time to follow Jesus. God did not do what they expected him to do. And boy, if that isn't true of my life and your life, you just have to live a few years to see that. And you start to learn it somewhere in those teenage years. And then in the older years, you begin to see that a lot of this doesn't make sense. A lot of this doesn't make sense. Can you follow Jesus when he doesn't do what you want him to do? Can you serve him in disappointment? Can you serve him with a broken heart? Or harder yet, can you say like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him? That's the real question of following Jesus. Because can you follow him when your vision and his vision creates a division? Can you follow him then? You had in your mind what you expected as a Christian, yet he had a higher purpose that deviated from yours. And you couldn't understand that. Are you humble enough to submit your vision to his vision? I think that's what it means to call him Lord. Is you got your vision, and you got his vision, and his vision deviates from your vision, are you still going to call him Lord in your life? That's the difficult question. The real proof of submission is to obey even when my heart is broken and I'm disappointed. That's the real proof of submission. A real disciple passes this test. Not my will, but thine be done. That's a process. That doesn't come overnight, but that is a process. So I've outlined this message around this thought, this theme. How to follow God in a fog. How to follow God in a fog. All right, I'm going to give you three points. Here we go. Number one, start with your baseline personal conviction and confession about God. Your baseline personal conviction and confession about God. That's where everything's got to start, where, where you make this confession and you have this conviction about God because once you get that in place, everything from that point on can fall into place if you'll let God do it. But it's very hard to... It's very hard sometimes to do that. So in this particular passage, it says that Jesus uh, went out along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea and on the way, there's the phrase, on the way. It's the first time it's mentioned in the book of Mark, on the way. So he's going to leave Galilee, never return there, and he's going to make a trip down to Jerusalem. So on the way, he went to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, verse 27, and on the way, he questioned his disciples saying, who do men say that I am? 
All right, we're going to start right here. Jesus leaves Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, where he's done all his ministry through Mark 1 to 8. And now he says, we're going to Caesarea Philippi. Now, the only problem with that is Caesarea Philippi is 40 miles north of Sea of Galilee, and then you've got to trek back those 40 miles down along the uh, Jordan River to get down to Jerusalem. So you have to ask yourself the question, why would he go up 40 miles north and take his disciples to a Gentile town, Caesarea Philippi, and in that Gentile town, he would ask them one question. After he asked them the one question, he would leave and head down to Jerusalem. That's a long hike. Why don't you just ask me the question right here in Galilee, okay? But he doesn't do it that way. He literally does it on the way. He takes them to Caesarea Philippi. This is the first place he chooses to start the journey of on the way. So you have to ask yourself, why does he choose this town? This is where he's going to begin his suffering predictions. Uh, some writers call it the passion predictions of Jesus, his passion to suffer. And... Um, so he takes them to Caesarea Philippi to, to reveal this stuff to him. Now, what is it about Caesarea? Number one, it's where Herod built and dedicated the temple to Caesar Augustus. Now, I'm going to show you kind of an overlay, a recreation of what that would have looked like in this town. I've been to Caesarea Philippi, and it's where Herod created and built this huge temple, and he did it from to the left side. You see, that's the temple of Caesar Augustus, and behind it is this huge opening into the base of Mount Hermon. And so uh, this was a kind of unusual place back then, but I'm just going to mention a few things about it. First of all, this is the place where they came to worship the supreme deities. They believed all the Roman gods lived in this town of Caesarea Philippi. And so uh, Herod builds this temple for Caesar Augustus because what he's saying is Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. He's the son of God. That's the way they saw it as Romans. Okay, so he takes them to this place that they would have never gone to because they would have seen that as a very ungodly place. And uh, number two, the second thing I want you to see about this place is it's a haven of demons. It's, it's literally in the scriptures called the gates of hell. The gates of hell being, this is where it is today without that rendering recreation. That's the gates of hell. It has no bottom in the ground there, and it was a place where a lot of worship went on. This reeks of demon worship uh, because of human child sacrifices. That's where they would make them, down in that little hole there. And um, it's, it's a very uh, wicked place because you'd give your firstborn, if you gave your firstborn in death and you sacrifice your firstborn, it's your highest level of sacrifice because you gave the thing you love the most, your firstborn. Maybe not love more than your other kids, but you would show some high sacrifice to say, I'm dedicated to you, God, and that's what they did there. And so it reeked of demonic uh, obsessions and possessions. It was a very evil place. The third thing I want you to see about this town, it is where the Jordan River begins. Now, that may mean, not mean much to you right here, but you're going to start to understand the Scriptures when you see this. When he says on the way, he starts at the beginning of the Jordan River in Caesarea Philippi, and he goes down along that riverbed and goes to the main road that follows the Jordan River down to Jerusalem. And that's important to say because the word Jordan, the Jordan River, it means in the Hebrew, judgment. So Jesus has gone to the Sea of Galilee. Now he's going up to the start of the Jordan River, and on the way he's taking the path of judgment to Jerusalem. That's the idea of the text. 
Okay, so that kind of sets the background of the text for what's going on here. So in Caesarea, there's all these gods, all these demons. Caesar is Lord, and Jesus decides to interrogate his, demon, his disciples there and ask them, who do men say that I am? What's the scuttlebutt? What's the gossip? What are they, what's everybody saying about me in Galilee? And so they answer, and they say, man, in the north part of Israel, they think you're John the Baptist. Now remember, in the north part, they... John the Baptist was from Jerusalem, so they didn't really get to see John the Baptist personally, but everybody believed he was John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah, you're the prophet who never died, and you've come back now to life, because or not come back to life, but you've come back and returned to this earth because you were caught up in a chariot of clouds. And then they said some of the great prophets. They would have probably definitely used someone like Isaiah uh, in that particular situation to say, you're as great as Isaiah. And then what Jesus does is he flips the whole thing around and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Literally in the Greek, and I want you to catch this, okay? Literally, you don't see it in the English, but in the Greek, it's literally this. Do you say yet who I am? Do you say yet who I am? In other words, the idea is he's taking the most sacred name of God and he's saying, do you see me as God? Do you see me as God? Have you perceived my identity all these months and maybe a year and a half to two years that I've walked with you? Have you perceived who I am? Or are you like the blind man I healed and you see me like a tree walking in a blurred vision? Are you still only halfway there in knowing who I am? Peter is the spokesman for the group. Now, Peter's name used to be Simon. In chapter 1 of Mark, he was called Simon. I never brought this out. And then in Mark 3, Jesus changed his name to Peter, the rock. The rock. That's a great name to give to a guy. A guy would like the rock name. Uh, It would be like Jesus saying, you are solid. You are tough. You are impenetrable. You are unbreakable. You are determined. You are steadfast, Peter. You want to feed a guy's ego. That's what you say to him, all right? And so probably feeding uh, uh, Peter's ego to say, you know what Jesus called me? He called me the rock. I'm rocky. I'm rocky, okay? Because just the idea of the text there is that it's bringing out the personality of Peter to say, I'm somebody else. And so um, in Matthew, Jesus says in this same story, upon this rock, upon you, Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, the very gates of hell you're looking at right now, we're going on the offense and we're going against them and I'll do it through the church. I'll fight this demonic opposition. I'll fight this Caesar is Lord. I'll fight everything to come against it because that's who I am. And so in this particular passage, um, Peter responds and says in front of all the disciples and write to Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. It is a personal confession on Peter's part. Now, I want you to hear that because that's important. You have to have a conviction about this, but you have to have a confession. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. There's something important about confessing your faith publicly. Jesus said, if you'll confess me publicly before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. So Peter has this public confession to say, you are the Christ. A public confession that he believes. Because I, I really do believe this, that the... the um, The faith that won't lead to confession won't lead to heaven. You've got to openly confess that. 
There's got to be a confession in your life. You say, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Messiah. Jesus is God. That, that confession. And so Peter gives a confession, a personal confession. But the, the emphasis of the text, it's written in such a way that it's actually a conviction too. He's not just saying, you are the Christ. He's saying, I believe with all my heart, you are the Christ. That's the way he's saying that, even though you don't maybe see that right there in the English. That's the emphasis of the text. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You are God's king on this earth. I believe it. I believe that every prophecy from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Malachi is a revelation of you. I believe you have come to save your people from their sin. Now, again, in Matthew 16, I'm thinking of a parallel passage here. Uh, Jesus looks at him and he says, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. What does he mean by that? You didn't learn that because you saw it in the newspaper. You didn't learn that because you got an education. This was only revealed to you by God the Father in heaven, and that's a beautiful thing. You can't see Jesus until God the Father is willing to let him be revealed to you. And once he reveals himself to you, you see it very clearly. And that's kind of what's happening here in the text, is that what Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, you have an incredible opportunity because I've been revealed to you and God the Father has permitted it. God has let you see the Son. I'm telling you, if that's your experience and you have seen Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that is a priceless treasure, the Bible says. That is the pearl of great price, the Bible says. And if that's all you get in your life and you never get another blessing, you've got the greatest blessing there ever is in this world. If God doesn't do one more thing for you, you have got the greatest blessing just to see the pearl of great price that God the Father would reveal unto you that you need to be saved and you need to claim Him as your Lord and Savior and see Jesus as God. That's, that's an incredible gift. All right, so that's, that's number one, all right? That is number one. There has to be a personal conviction and confession in your life because that's going to be your baseline need because you're going to face some things that are going to be difficult. But once you have that in place, you can move forward, all right? Number two, prepare for the unexpected setbacks in your Christian life. Now, it says in verse 30, after Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus says in verse 30, and he warned them to tell no one about him. I'm all, at least these phrases in the Bible over and over. Uh, he warned them to tell no, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Jesus is like into that everywhere he goes, even with his own disciples. You'd think he would have said, you finally hear me, you, you get me. That's what, you know, I would have been like, wow, you get me. And, and Jesus doesn't say that at, at all. He strictly commands them. That's a command there. Don't you tell anybody. So you have to ask yourself, like I had to ask myself and figure this out, what is he doing here? What Jesus is doing with these disciples is he realizes their confession is one-sided. It's one-sided about who Jesus really is. Now, what Peter said was true, and it was full of faith, but it leaves out a key piece. It leaves out a key piece. In other words, I don't want you going out there and asking people to follow me without understanding the other side of being a follower of Christ. So he's going to give them the other piece that he's never given them in Mark 1 to 8, and now he's going to tell them this is the other side of following Christ. And if you're going to follow Christ, this is exactly the pathway that's going to be for you. 
All right, what's the other side? Jesus explains it, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So Jesus says four things. Let me give you the other side of what it means to follow your Messiah. This is what's going to happen to me. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And I must raise from the dead. Now that's, that's pretty straightforward. Jesus sets it not as a possibility. Well, maybe I'll die. Maybe I'll suffer. Maybe I'll be rejected. No, no, no. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must die. And I must be raised from the dead. To the disciples, that would have been a total shock. They would have been sitting there saying to themselves, you've got to be kidding me. You must suffer, you must be rejected, you must be killed, and you must raise from the dead? Yes, that's, that's right. See, it's the language of necessity here, and I want you to get this. When you use the word must in front of something, it means there's no other options. You must go with me now. This is what I must face. There's no, there's no other options. And why is that? Why is Jesus so intense about this? Because the Father's plan for the world... The Father's plan for the world is determined that His Son would stand in the place of His people. That's been God's plan before the foundations of the earth. That He would vicariously, He would be a substitute and suffer for His people. He would suffer for them. He would be rejected. Not that He's worthy of rejection. Jesus is not worthy of rejection. It's not that He's worthy of rejection. It's that you're worthy of rejection. And because you're worthy of rejection, He puts everything on Himself. And he says, I'm willing to be rejected because that's the plan of the Father. For me to be rejected when you should have been rejected. But I will be your substitute. I will, I will take your punishment for sin. I will take your death. I will take your hell. I'll take it all. If Jesus is to save his people, that's the necessary plan. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And I must rise from the dead. Now, this would have shocked them. The question you have to ask is, why would this shock them? Because all the rabbis and the people of, under, of Israel understood all these passages about the Messiah. There's hundreds of them in the Old Testament. Hundreds of prophecies and things said about what the Messiah would be. And they loved those prophecy passages. The disciples would have known them. All the rabbis would have known them. They would have looked at the vast complexities of this, of the Messiah that they were looking for, and they would have said, he's the ruler, he's the king, he's the liberator, he's the deliverer, he's the shepherd. But there's one thing for sure all the rabbis agreed on, and there's one thing for sure that the disciples agreed on, that the Messiah would never suffer like he just said. Somehow, they looked at all those passages in the Old Testament and they would never believe the ones were about the Messiah where it said he must suffer, he must be rejected, he must be killed, and he must rise from the dead. So you know what they did in that particular day, what the rabbis did for the last 500 years to the first century of Jesus Christ, is they said that's not about Jesus. They said that's about the nation of Israel. Those suffering aren't about Jesus, because no leader, no ruler, no Messiah is going to suffer. That's humiliating. That's, that's awful to think about. That's, that's not anything we can entertain in our minds. So what they did is they reinterpreted the Old Testament to mean that that's not talking about Jesus as the Messiah and suffering. That's talking about the Jewish people and the nation suffering. 
And if even to this day, the Jewish people still believe that all those passages are to be interpreted about their nation. Because if you look at their nation, you could easily see they've suffered ever since their existence. When they went into slavery in Exodus, all through the Old Testament, you come all the way to Hitler, there's been a constant, constant battle for the Jewish people to be wiped off the face of the earth. The Palestinian Liberation Organization says, we're going to drive you into the sea. The Hezbollah and the Lebanese, they can't stand them. Nobody can stand them in that area. And they want to force them to be destroyed. That has been their life story. And so they took all these passages about a suffering Messiah and they applied them to themselves to say, we'll suffer, but our Messiah will never suffer. And they're filled, they're filled with this kind of pride about that, that they have suffered these things and, and been sustained, but not our Messiah, not our Messiah. And yet what they do is they overlook simple passages in Scripture that say that. For example, Psalm 22 thousand years before Christ was crucified, you read Psalm 22 and you feel like you're right at the foot of the cross watching an execution. thousand years before it ever happened, they talk about it. Isaiah 53, 3, probably the greatest chapter in the Old Testament. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Surely he hath borne our sorrow, and by his stripes we are healed. His stripes. They said, that's the nation of Israel. That's not Jesus. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And in the chastisement of our peace, it was put upon him. Well, what is the point? The point is that Jesus was going to take that all for the nation. But what they said is, that's not Jesus. That's the nation. That's not Jesus. And so they took that very simple passages in Scripture. Uh, one of them, I, I wrote this one down too, Isaiah 53, 7. As a lamb brought to his slaughter. As a lamb before his shears is dumb or silent. He opened not his mouth. That's an incredible passage. That was predicted 800 years before it ever happened that he would go willingly to his death. And he said, that's the will of God for my life, that I'd willingly go, and when they started to beat me and put a crown of thorns on my head and put those nails in me, I would open up my mouth. I wouldn't open my mouth. Do you know a lamb is the only animal that won't fight its own death? It will willingly let you slaughter it. Now, I know I've told you that maybe a few years ago, and some of you didn't like that, so I won't go into the detail of that, but that is an amazing thing about a lamb. It will willingly be killed by you, and it won't fight you. Pigs? Just talking to a member the other day, saying that uh, when he and his dad would go uh, slaughter the hogs, the dad would come look them over, look over the whole bunch of hogs there, and say, well, I want that one. And that hog would look him right in the eye, and the hog knew, he wants me. He said, you know, he said that hog would do? Hog would turn right around and walk to the back of the pack because he don't want to be killed. He don't want to be killed. Isn't it amazing that every animal, a pig, a cow, will fight their death but not a lamb? That's amazing. That's why my uh, Hebrew professor of minor prophets took me to a slaughterhouse, a Jewish slaughterhouse. Whew, I thought I was going to throw up because it was so horrible. But I've never forgotten it. Never forgotten the way a lamb is slaughtered versus a cow. 
Okay, I won't go into any more detail. You'd get a little sick if you say any more about that. Okay, but, but anyways, that's, that's exactly what the scriptures are saying here. So in the first century, it was shocking to the disciples because no one taught that. No one believed that. They all believed it was the nation, but not Jesus. And Jesus saying, that's not what's going to happen. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. And I must rise from the dead. Well, they didn't like that at all because the light bulbs would go off. They would say to themselves, well, if you must suffer, that means there's a death sentence on your life. Light bulb two. And if you must suffer and there's a death sentence on your life, we're your followers. There must be a death sentence on our life. And they're getting it. It's the first time they get it. They start to get and think about what this means. And so they're overwhelmed by that truth. And then Jesus said in verse 32 that he spake openly and clearly and plainly about this. He had been hiding it up to this point. He'd been talking in, you know, uh, nebulous terms. But here he's saying it outright. He's preaching the word of God to them plainly and clearly for the first time. Let me lay it out for you, everybody. It's going to get bad. It's going to get real bad when we get to Jerusalem. So on the way... Walking the path of judgment, I want you to know what it's going to be like when we get there. And they're starting to get this. They're starting to understand this. I, I just want to speak to you just for a minute from my heart because I don't always want to believe this, that this is the path that Jesus took and this is the path you'll have to take. I wish somebody at 18 would have told me that, that the path you're going to be on if you follow Christ is a path of suffering and disappointment, and hurt, and betrayal, and somebody's going to lie to you. People you didn't think would lie to you are going to lie to you. Wish they would have told me that. I don't know if I'd have handled it any better or not. I can remember in my 20s thinking, why would a Christian lie to you? Why would a Christian betray you? Then I got hired for a job. They called me up. They said, come on out. 98% vote for you to be the associate pastor. Come up here and uh, be the associate pastor for two years, and then you take over the church, and I'll resign. I went up there, and that's not what happened. A year and a half into the job, he looks at me, and he said, you could never be the pastor of this church. You'd destroy it. He lied to me. He betrayed me. And I felt the dagger... go through my heart. And you know what I wanted to do? I'll tell you what I wanted to do at 26. I wanted to run. I wanted to hide. I wanted to get away from anything ministry. Anything ministry. I had no idea. God, you'd put me through this. You'd allow me to go through this. You'd, you'd set this up for me. Well, God, if that's the way you're going to treat me, I'm going to run. And run I did. I ran to the Mile High City. I moved there. My wife was worried to death about me. She thought I was having an affair, running around on her because I was so messed up. I was so depressed. I had never failed in such a way in my life like I failed when I was 26. One of the hardest times, if not the hardest time in my life. So I went out there and I told everybody, I'm just going to get some more training and counseling. That's what I said with my mouth. But in my heart, I was running, and I was hiding. I was running like Adam because I was ashamed. 
I was running like Jacob because I was scared. I was running like Hagar because I wanted to die. I was running like Elijah because I was depressed. I had never been depressed in my whole life. I never got depressed. I was happy-go-lucky. But when depression hit, I didn't even know what to do. I had no idea that if you're going to follow God, it's going to be very similar to what your Savior experienced. You're going to suffer. You're going to be rejected. You may even be killed. But you're going to rise again. If I wasn't taken through that, I don't know where I'd be today. I look back on it as the worst experience in my life. But all along, God was just going before me and saying, I'm just going to destroy everything you believed in. You believed in your personality. You believed in your abilities. You believed you could do anything. I'm going to take that all away. But it's made me who I am today. It's made me who I am today. And I see things completely different. Do I always get this thing right? No. But I definitely can say to you that that's very central to the way God works in our life. So I say it, number two, prepare the unexpected setbacks in your Christian life. They'll come. Number three, and we'll close. Number three, never say never to God's plan for your life. This is exactly what Peter did, and in many ways I can relate to this, as probably you can too. And so he was stating, verse 32, plainly the matter. I'm going to suffer, be rejected. I'm going to be killed and raised again. He He stated it plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, Jesus took the disciples aside and he began to teach them the word of God. I have to suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise from the dead. I I took them aside and do it. Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. He rebukes him. Now, this is an amazing thing to me. It's one thing to disagree with Jesus. It's another thing to rebuke the teacher who's teaching you. Because this is God in the flesh, all right? This is not a normal person. This is God in the flesh, and you're rebuking him. It's the incarnate word of God. He embodies all truth, and you're rebuking him. That's right. That's right. You're not doing the right thing in my life, God. You don't know what you're doing. Now, the word rebuke there is used in the book of Mark, so you get this, okay, to denounce and condemn the demons of hell. That's the only way it's used in the book of Mark, is to denounce and condemn the demons of hell. So when Jesus silenced demons, he rebuked them. In other words, when he rebuked them out of a person, he was judging them and condemning them that they were worthy of condemnation. So Peter, his protest here is with force. He's standing up in Jesus with a hostile rebuke. It's like he's rebuking a demon out of Jesus. Be healed of that demon, Jesus. That's what Peter's doing. He's just kind of, get out of him. So you just kind of can feel the intensity of this. Peter's like, you'll never do that. You'll never do that. No, 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 not in this world. Now, I just want to say this to you, okay? Sometimes we rebuke things that cannot be rebuked. Sometimes we rebuke things that cannot be rebuked. Like myself, when I want to say, God, don't take me through that. What are you taking me through that for? You don't know what you're doing. It wasn't just one time in my life. 
There's all kinds of times we experience this feeling. So what does Jesus do? He responds and rebukes Peter. Because he really had a demon in him. He says to him, look, turn around and see his disciples. He rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan, if you're not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. What an incredible statement there. Jesus responds, rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. The rock, the rock, I called you the rock, now I call you Satan. It's just, it's just flipped completely around. This isn't, this isn't a demon influencing Peter. It's Satan himself. The prince and power of the world. Now, why would he call Peter Satan? Or why would he call, yeah, why would he call Peter Satan? Because the same enticement that the devil used against Jesus back in Mark chapter 1, when he told him, if you're the son of God, he's now using it through Peter. What did he say in Mark chapter 1? If you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you're the son of God, jump off the temple and the angels will catch you just before you fall. If you're the son of God, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. All these temptations had at core, and that's what I want you to understand today. All these temptations had at core was a promise of a kingdom to Jesus without pain, without suffering. And if there's one thing you want in this life is you'd like to have a kingdom without pain. You'd like to have a kingdom without suffering. Satan says, follow me and you'll have all of it. You won't have your pain. You won't have to go down the Via Della Rosa. You won't have to go through the path of suffering, Jesus. Just bow down to me. Just bow down to me. No suffering. No rejection. No death. You can live your life on a high. Remember that line in Mark 1 where... The Bible says when Jesus would not submit to all those temptations, it said Satan departed for a season. Let me tell you something. He's back. He's back. But this time he's not back looking like an enemy. He's looking like a best friend. He returned to seduce Jesus with a cheap way to glory through his closest friend, Peter. Peter says, you are the Christ, but Christ can't suffer. Get that straight, Jesus. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus evaluates his friends, all right? This is important. This is how Jesus evaluates his friend. Jesus evalu evaluates his friends not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's such an important way to evaluate your friends or people you love. You say, what do you mean? What did they manifest at that particular time? That's how Jesus evaluated them. You are the Christ. Man, you got that from God. You'll never go to the cross. Mm, Satan's talking through you now. Same guy. He loved them both the same, whether he was right or wrong. He loved them just the same. But he had a way of being influenced in his life. Jesus saw when Peter was discerning and solid like a rock, but he saw Peter when he was unstable and had no discernment. 
And he called him out on it without changing his love for him. Do you know what spirit your friends are in? Do you know what spirit your loved ones are in? Walking with them from moment to moment in life. Are you mature enough to say, that's Christ in you speaking right now? Or are you mature enough to say, that's Satan speaking in you right now? Now, don't literally do that, okay? Don't, <laughs> don't, don't go home and say to your wife, that's Satan speaking in you right now. That's not going to go well, okay? But do you have the ability, do you have the ability to discern what people say to you? If I was treated the way you were treated at that job, I'd walk out. Now, is that God or is that Satan? Can you discern that? Or is your friend going to feed you what you want to hear? It's never easy, is it? Isn't it easy to always discern that voice? Because if you can't do that, the enemy will use people who love you to shift you out of God's will for your life. Right down to your best friend to shift you out of God's will for your life. It's a scary thought, but it's a true thought. Satan was so wise not to use Jesus' enemies, but to speak through who he loved. He loved Peter. Satan uses who you like. Satan uses who you love. He can take a kid in your home, and he can use that kid to somehow get you to think wrong. He can use a parent. He can use a friend. He can use whoever he wants, but he can get it all twisted. You don't know what's up, what's down, what's right, what's wrong. Sometimes you have to just step back and say, now is that Satan speaking or is that God speaking? You can get so busy liking them that you can't tell Satan is speaking through them. That's an incredible danger. Get behind me, Satan. What does he say there? He says, you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man. What a beautiful statement. Let me just close with that one, okay? Now, he says, you're not thinking, you're not mindful of the things of God, you're mindful of the things of man. Now, what are the things of God? The things of God, what that means is the things you have to suffer for God's will. You don't want to do that. You want to run. You want to hide. But, but, but that means the things of God are the things that you have to suffer in God's will. The things of man... It's just when you want the pain to go away. You don't want to suffer. You don't want to go through that anymore. I just want it to be gone in my life. That's the things of man. That's the context of the whole story. I just want the pain to go away. That's the devil talking. That's the devil talking. Now, I'm, I'm going to say this. I'm going to close here, but uh, Romans 5.3 was written for ma mature Christians. It says this, a mature Christian glories in tribulation. I can't say how many times I've actually done that in my life, but it hasn't been many. The word glory there means to shout, to praise, to rejoice, to get excited about. That's what the word to glory in tribulation means. I don't know anybody who naturally does that except a mature Christian. Okay? Any Christian can shout over good news. Mature Christians can praise God over bad news. The doctor tells you, you can't be healed. Well, I'm going to praise God. 
Why are you going to praise God? Because I know deep down, somehow, some way, God's going to get glory out of this. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he will do it. I don't even know who he'll use to do it, but I believe God's going to make a way for me. What if I die? Deep down, somehow, some way, God's going to get glory out of this. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know when he will do it. I don't know who he's going to use to do it, but I believe God's going to make a way for me. Any setback, any test, any trouble, the Lord says, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. And if you will patiently continue in your trial, I will see that you are recompensed in this life or the next. I will see that you are recompensed. You will be paid back for everything you did to honor me through that trial. You will be recompensed. That's Romans chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Okay, so let me just give you the conclusion, all right? Because I'm done. The cross first, then the crown. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you for this moment. And I recognize there are many in here that are carrying some things that are very difficult. And like me, they'd like to run. They'd like to hide. They just want the pain to go away. And they're carrying some things that are very hard. I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to make it better than it is. It's just very difficult. So God, I want to pray, I want to pray a blessing over them that have listened to this message. And that you'd increase their faith to believe that the things of God are far better than the things of man. And though they may carry some deep, deep, deep wounds, betrayal, lying, evils of all kind. Just remind them. Just remind them. It's the path. It's the path you've chosen. And may they learn on the way for all that they face. You'll be a God who pays back in kind to everything they suffer. So may they bear it well. May they have a deep glory and tribulation. And would you put your hand on them today? I ask that now. Father, I thank you for your word to be a guide to each of us. God, we pray that you'll be honored here today. May we be able to go away and say, it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. And may their spirit connect with your spirit. Now I ask these things in the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team's going to come this morning. 
If there's something in your heart you'd like to lay at this altar, something God's speaking to you about, you come, you bring it, the altar's open. Let's sing together with the praise team.